Welcome to UFO Think Tank Radio with your host Alejandro Rojas. to be here with you yet again. Uh, we have a great show today. We have Robert Schroeder, uh, and he's going to talk about UFOs and modern physics, not unlike a couple of shows ago when we had David Paris. This is a gentleman who has done a lot of work looking into how UFOs operate, and uh, he's very up-to-date on modern physics, and he's drawing some connections. Hey, man, I think I can... Talk to how UFOs operate. We might be able to measure um, some effects from these UFO sightings to prove that this is the case. Very interesting show. As you all know, I love UFO science and getting science involved with all of this and trying to move it forward that way. And that's what this show is all about. Robert has written a book called Solving the UFO Enigma, How Modern Physics is Revealing the Technologies of UFOs. So we're going to talk all about Robert, how he got here. Uh, He's actually an engineer uh, for for many years, and we'll talk about his background also. So this is very exciting. I think you're going to love it. And we have a lot to talk about. So actually, I'm going to truncate the news a little bit into about eight minutes. And also, because I'm busting at the seams, and I just can't keep this from you all anymore, if you're in to UFOs and science and space science, you're going to love something I am working on specially just for you, which is a conference with uh, some media people and some scientists, and we're going to talk about space UFOs and the search for extraterrestrial life, astrobiology, you know, Kepler and all of this planet hunting that's going on, physics and mathematics, and we're going to have all these PhDs, we're going to have, you know, a lot of, if you have buddies who you're like, man, you know, uh, they're real skeptics, they're real science minded, they're engineers or scientists, and you're like, You know, I don't know if I want to take them to some of these other conferences. They're going to think this stuff's a little too fringe. Then this is a conference for you. Please bring your skeptic buddies. It's going to be reasonably priced, and it's going to be in Las Vegas, Nevada, the first weekend of October at the beautiful Tropicana, the middle of the Strip. So I am talking first class. First class place bold out there. They're going to have this up on the marquee on the strip across the street from Excalibur and Luxor and MGM in the middle of everything, not hidden away in some side room. We are going to have uh, just an incredible event. I'm going to talk to you more about that in a little while. I don't have the site up. I don't uh, have all the speakers confirmed, and I don't have time to talk too much on it now, but I wanted to let you know uh, it's also going to be extremely affordable, probably less than practically any conference out there. But anyway, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be great. You guys are going to love it. Wanted to give you a little heads up because we're going to have limited space. 
But I need to get into some news of the week. Now, I talked about this last week, but I wrote my own story up at ufodailynews.com. And this is about the Viking Mars mission possibly finding life. And the reason I'm bringing it up again is because I wrote this story uh, and in fact, I'm reporting here from the UFO Daily Newsroom. And by the way, you know, this site, if you go to it, it's awesome. If you go to the UFO News feed, you're going to have UFO News uh, updated on a regular basis. You're going to be like, wow, this is incredible. This has never been done before. And you're right, because it hasn't. And if you want to help write for UFO Daily News, I would love to have some volunteers and work with some of you out there. So please email me at info at ufodailynews.com info at ufodailynews.com or alejandro at ufodailynews.com some of you can't spell that that's fine really i've got it set up where anything you put before at ufodailynews.com it's going to get to me so yeah if you want to write about some of this stuff like the viking mars mission finding life what happened and this is really cool is that this university of southern california um scientist his name is joseph miller he's a biologist and a neuropharmacologist. So um, he looked at that data. And what they've done is put together this mathematical uh, equation that can kind of, or, or a program that can look at this data from the soil and determine whether it is uh, from organic living matter or not. He says he's ran experiments here on Earth and it's always been accurate. The, the soil with organics in it shows that it is more complex than the soil without. He ran these experiments with the numbers that were retrieved from the Viking missions in the late 70s to Mars. And he says, without a doubt, it shows that there's living bacteria in the soil. He says he's 99% sure there is life in this bacteria. That is fascinating news, I think. He says, some critics have said that this math mathematical system has not been proven yet. It's not um, completely adopted by everyone. And so they haven't taken this as hard proof yet, but it's certainly very strong evidence. What he says is that we need to send a microscope out there to look to see if we can see some bacteria moving around in, in the soil. And unfortunately, although we are sending a new probe out there, which is going to be there soon, uh, this probe, the Curiosity rover, it doesn't have a microscope like that. And that's really unfortunate. Why not? I mean, why not um, put this thing to rest and, and have the equipment on this new rover that you're sending out there? So that's very unfortunate. But uh, he's hopeful that this rover will find more evidence without being able to take video of, of microbes moving around in the soil uh, there's not going to be hard proof, but at least more evidence, which we already have that mounting more and more every day. Speaking of robotic probes, uh, there's been some interesting news out there from another professor who wrote uh, in the Journal of the uh, British Interplanetary Society about robots and how he thinks in order to find E.T., we need to build self-replicating robots. And he's talking about building these robots on the moon that build themselves, and they go out there and just search and search, and uh, they have the abilities to search for signs of life and, and fly around and do all this discovery. Very interesting idea, and what a sci-fi advanced type of theory he has. 
In fact, he even talks about how most likely that uh, if there are intelligent civilizations out there, they're probably doing this too. His quote is, if they're like us, they too have a dysfunctional government and all the other problems plaguing us. They won't want to spend a lot of time to communicate with us. He thinks they'll send out robots and things. And who knows, perhaps that is largely what we see with these UFOs. We're possibly seeing probes um, often. So very interesting there. Uh, before I get into some you know, more interesting UFO uh, news, this is something really cool here. And I, I'm just going to give you a little teaser. Really, this is UC Berkeley. Um, who used to manage the Allen Telescope Array. And this is the array I talked about recently that was turned off for a period of time for a lack of funding, which spawned a bunch of stories about SETI being shut down. They weren't really shut down. They just were not able to use their, their primary source, their telescope array, to search for signals anymore. However, they got funding, and it was put back online. Well, now that Allen Telescope Array has moved management. It's now going to be managed by SRI International, which is a nonprofit organization. SRI used to be the Stanford Research Institute, and that's where SRI comes from. And SRI did some interesting stuff with remote viewing. So these remote viewing people, they essentially created remote viewing. They didn't create the psychic phenomena that... Uh, allowed remote viewing. They just kind of named it remote viewing. And now they are managing the search for extraterrestrial life. I think that's really interesting. And I'm going to write a story on this that I'll have up on the Huffington Post. And I'll probably tell you more about that next week. Anderson Cooper, if you don't know, has a daytime television show now. And tomorrow he is featuring... People who believe they're abducted by aliens. And he's going to be talking about UFO sightings. So this is pretty exciting. Anderson Cooper, his, his television show. Uh, the John Ventry, who is the, I think it's actually Venture. I've had him on the show before. But he is the Pennsylvania MUFON director. He's going to be on the show. And they're going to be talking about some sightings in that area. So that's really interesting. Anderson Cooper, Cooper, if you're home during the day, check it out or set your TiVo. You're going to want to um, check that out. And, you know, they're going to have a couple of abductees. They're going to have UFO witnesses. And hopefully they'll be taking all this seriously. It ought to be really interesting. I'm, uh, of course, interested to see how that turns out. Other news, uh, CBS in Florida wrote about uh, something that our good buddy Lee Spiegel wrote about recently, which is this Marine Reserve Squadron pilot who in 1975 had his own UFO sighting. And this is going to be featured in John Alexander's new book coming out. And uh, actually, Lee Spiegel of the Huffington Post wrote about this recently. So that news has spread out some more. And I guess my last piece before we go is uh, this exciting story that actually our good buddy Jason McClellan found. And this is that the World's Fair in San Diego County is going to be called Out of This World. So the 2012 World's Fair, or I'm sorry, not World's Fair, County Fair in San Diego, it would be, I guess, this out-of-this-world fair. 
Uh, so really interesting. They're going to have kind of a UFO alien themed county fair out there in San Diego. And San Diego, of course, has wonderful weather. So that's really interesting. And I think I need to look into checking that out because June here is a little unbearable. And I'd like to drive just a few hours to San Diego to check it out. So this is really, uh, I think that's quite fascinating. Even if you look at the picture, you know, the out and out of this world has a picture of like kind of the head of an alien gray type of figure. So that is the news, ladies and gentlemen, for this week. Uh, Because there's so much science and stuff to talk about, I really want to get into this interview with Robert Schroeder. So let's go ahead and talk to Robert. All right. I am very happy to have Robert Schroeder on with me. Hello, Robert. Hi, Alejandro. Uh, How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? Uh, Fantastic. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Uh, You know, I love to talk about the science of of UFOs. I think that's what, you know, a lot of people, there's, people don't realize there is work going on. There is more than just sightings and recording of sightings. There's great people like you doing some work out there to figure out uh, some of the mechanics behind some of these things. And so it's really exciting to have you on and to talk about your new book, uh, Solving the UFO Enigma, How Modern Physics is Revealing the Technology of UFOs. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me on the show, too. (laughs) Uh, My pleasure. My first question, I guess, is to get into how this all came about. Uh, how was it, and when was it that uh, you started to take the UFO phenomena seriously? Uh, okay, I can tell you. Um, I, I'm probably like a lot of people who've gotten involved in the UFO phenomenon and studying it. Um, way back in 1957, I was um, just 12 years old, and uh, I come from uh, New Jersey. Uh, northern New Jersey, a little town called uh, Teaneck, and it's only a couple miles west of Manhattan, a little bit west of the Hudson River. And uh, and anyway, one day, and I admit even though I was only 12, I had very good eyesight, and even at that age, I loved science. And um, in fact, I come from a family of scientists and engineers. But at I was standing out in the uh, front yard of our house in Teaneck, and um, and and the uh, anyway, I was in the yard, and the house was on the west side of me, and I looked over at the peak of the roof of the house, and I saw uh, what looked like a it was oh, it was about 5 p.m. It was around November, very very early November, 1957, and I saw what looked like a um, cylinder in the sky but looked very very high up it looked like at about the height of jet airplanes and it was and they had just Boeing 707 uh, had just come out at that time 1956-57 so anyway I saw this um, cylinder going overhead and I and it, and I looked at it and I thought what the heck is that um, because I had seen plenty of airplanes but this was the only the first time I had seen an airplane that didn't look like it had wings. <laughs> and so it totally baffled me. And it was just appearing over the peak of the roof of our house, only because the house hit it. And But it was obviously way, way up in the sky. And um, 
And then as I'm watching it, I notice that the front of this cylinder was perfectly blunt, and the back was blunt too. It was just squared off. In fact, if anything, it looked like a cigarette, but of one um, consistent color from front to back. It was just kind of a gold color. And so I'm watching it, and then all of a sudden, coming over the um, peak of the roof of the house, comes another object, a round object, that's about two lengths of the cylinder behind it, uh, the first cylinder, and they're obviously flying together in tandem. And um, the round object was following the cylinder, uh, the these long cylinder. And at that point, Halandro, I really, I realized I was looking at something really strange. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, now Sputnik had just gone up, um, I guess about a month before. And so my thinking, my first thought, I was just a kid, I guess. Um, <clears throat> my first thought was, gee, maybe that's the rocket and maybe that's Sputnik. But I'm trying to figure out why Sputnik would be behind the rocket. And also I couldn't figure out why uh, the rocket would still be up there in space. Shouldn't that have fallen back down into the atmosphere? <laughs> and then I suddenly realized from, you know, reading the papers and stuff that Sputnik was only the size of a beach ball, and I knew that um, what, that, uh, and I also knew that Sputnik was about a hundred miles up. So I knew at a hundred miles there was simply no way that I could see a beach ball. And at that point, at that instant, I realized that uh, this was something really, really strange, and and that's what got me going. And and I just want to add one more thing, and then I'll uh, let this go. Um, over the years, I began, you know, occasionally as I had time, I began to study uh, the UFO subject, the subject of UFOs. And one of the things that I found <clears throat> um, was that uh, they have these waves when um, many, many UFOs are spotted around a given area of the world, like one country or a region of countries, as in Europe. And... Uh, um, and they and they'll have these UFO waves that'll last for, you know, a couple months or six months or even a year. And I discovered a few years later that there had been a gigantic UFO wave in November of nineteen fifty seven in the United States, exactly when I had seen that out those two objects. Mm-hmm. And that really got my attention and I realized I literally at that instant that um, very likely we were being visited by extraterrestrial civilizations. At that instant, I knew it. And and I know a lot of other people who have seen these things have come to that realization, too, uh, under similar circumstances. But anyway, that's how I got into it. In a, okay, great. Uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like an incredible yeah. sighting, much more incredible than any sighting I've had. So I'm kind of jealous of you there. Oh, yeah. But there'll be more coming, yeah. I guess with your sighting, you know, sometimes people uh, come to different conclusions other than the extraterrestrial one. What makes you certain that it's an extraterrestrial phenomenon? Okay, I admit that's a conjecture. Um, But my thinking is that um, um, that we, we now know that there are, I mean, even back then, there was a mm-hmm. suspicion 
that many, many stars of our type, uh, which is called the G-star uh, in astronomical lingo, um, it, it was thought that many, many other stars um, had planets going around them just like ours. And, uh, and so my thinking was that um, probably intelligent creatures had evolved on other planets as well. That seemed the most likely explanation. Um, and um, now, of course, um, uh, most people are aware that um, astronomers have uh, detected, uh, I think, hundreds, if not over a thousand mm -hmm. extra solar planets. And they're even at the point where they're hoping to be able to um, um, get information, spectrographic information, on the atmospheres of planets going around other stars. And if they detect things like methane or something like that, that would be an indication of life, or, or probably of life. In a, and so, uh, so it's getting pretty exciting. And I think the science is definitely beginning to back up the conjecture that um, there may be other, many, many other civilizations out there, and it's just a matter of time uh, before we detect them. In a, Mm -hmm. And so, so that's my thinking. And I do realize there are other possibilities, you know, like people coming in a time machine back, you know, from the future to the past and things like that. But I know that uh, very, um, you know, very accomplished physicists like uh, Stephen Hawking discount the possibility of time travel. And they point out that, and this guy is, you know, he really knows the math of general relativity and stuff. And his argument is that um, um, there are certain mathematical contradictions that just wouldn't allow it, you know. Um, it, it would be it'd be fun if, if you could do it, but I don't think you can. However, um, just the ability to go from other planets to our planet, uh, extrasolar planets to our planet, uh, is, is incredible enough by itself. Mm -hmm. And... So, so I think um, that that alone interests me uh, tremendously. Right. Yeah, I just think yeah. it's kind of interesting because I think you can argue that using Occam's razor, the extraterrestrial question is kind of the easiest. It is the simplest, an advanced technology well beyond our own uh, that we are yeah. uh, witnessing. And so it kind of is the simplest answer uh, that it's, a civilization beyond our own, and I think that's why a lot of people come to that conclusion. Yeah, it's the most, it's probably the most likely answer. That's mm -hmm. the, kind of the way I think about it. In a, but I'm, I don't totally discount other possibilities either. I just think that they are less likely, you know. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. So my next question would be your scientific background. So uh, you do have a background in science. Uh, I think, obviously, from listening to you, you know science very well and physics. Um, could you share that with us? I sure can. Um, I, I, as, as I mentioned, I come from a family of scientists and engineers. Um, and my own background, um, I, I have a degree in mathematics, um, and I also have an associate's degree in aerospace engineering uh, and uh, and an MBA too on top of all that. You know. But um, my family um, uh, my family has a lot of scientists and engineers in it. Uh, my dad was a 
our research chemist, and he was a graduate of MIT, and and, my, and our daughter uh, is a graduate from uh, Penn State, and she's a structural engineer down in the in the Washington D.C. area, a twenty-something daughter, you know, and uh, so and then I have a lot of my brothers and sisters are um, involved in science, engineering, and stuff, and and also many of my nephews and nieces are in one way or the other are some of them are engineers some involved in biology or science too and and so that's kind of my background um but um i although i um i didn't work in the academic world i worked in i actually uh retired from hewlett-packard uh just a couple of years ago but i had worked for them for 27 years i was in private industry um, but um, uh, on the side, when I had time, I spent an awful lot of uh, time and effort studying what's going on in, in modern physics. And I just have—I have to say—I have an absolute passion for science. I'm, you know, I'm one of those guys that, when I go shopping with my wife or, or, or if our daughter's with us, and I go buy a magazine rack, and they have a science magazine. They'll they'll find me there later, <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, so um, but that and then and then and they they're kind of afraid to take me to a bookstore because they can't right. drag. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, that's kind of who I am, you know. Okay. And, yeah. So okay. Given that with your your family, you're gonna you know family of scientists and engineers. A couple questions before we get into your book. Uh, real quick okay. to, to lend some insight. How um, do your how do your your family members who are in science and engineering what do they think about your work with UFOs or about the subject? Oh, okay. Um, uh, my two brothers um, are both in total agreement, and Great. they're fascinated by the uh, theories and everything. Um, my daughter, uh, she she's she's interested too, and she has she gives out copies of the book to her friends down in the DC area and, and uh, I can't say she has as much passion for the subject as I do um now my my wife who's a math teacher um and high school math teacher um uh, she's she's interested in it too and she goes around to the presentations that I do and she'll usually sit in the back and run the projector uh when I do the presentations and um I, I I can't say she uh, like my daughter. Probably my wife doesn't quite have the passion that I do. Um, but my some of my nephews uh, are definitely interested, and um, I've given them copies of the book, and they come back with questions for Uncle Bob, and so so I figure that's a good sign. And and so yeah, so uh, generally, and now my my parents have passed away, um, but my dad. Um, although I sh- I can't say that he spent a lot of time, you know, looking into the UFO topic because he was pretty busy with uh, other things. You know, I don't I don't think he discounted it either. Um, so I think I think in a way it might be that the younger younger generations have paid more attention to the UFO phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, there might be kind of a generational disconnect a little bit, you know. 
and uh, but um, uh, but any in any case, I can tell you this that you know back in the 60s and 70s, although there was a great deal of interest in the UFO phenomenon, I find today um, that it's I think it's it has it's attracting more interest than it ever has, mm. and I'm and I'm happy that that's the case. Um, I'm just hoping that um, you know. Uh, that we can bring some hard science to it and and figure it out. Yeah. Right. It, and it seems that, you know, uh, this you're an example of, of what I try to tell people. A lot of people say, well, if there was something to this, scientists would be into it. And there are a lot of individual scientists that are into the subject, engineers and so forth. In fact, uh-huh. scientists really got this whole ball rolling and in investigating it. Uh, there may not be scientific organizations or universities, and I think that's what people mean. But there is kind of this this idea that scientists aren't into this subject. And furthermore, you see a lot of science students, it, it seems, uh, participating and debunking as if they feel that the, they're that's what they're supposed to do. We're scientists. We debunk things that we see fringe, as fringe like this stuff. Why do you think that yeah. idea persists? You're exactly right, and I'll tell you what the problem is. Um, it's um, the 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 problem is, I, I believe anyway, um, that um, uh, way back in the fifties, um, and I'm not a I'm not a believer in conspiracies or anything, but I do think um, something did happen back then that uh, unfortunately, um, you know kind of um, caused the UFO phenomenon to be looked at in a very skeptical skeptical manner by uh, professional scientists and much of the um, media and the journalists. And, um, and what happened was, um, uh, and see so a lot of people today that are younger don't may not remember what was going on back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but that was at the height of the Cold War, and and the CIA was actually concerned about um, uh, UFO sightings or bogus UFO sightings clogging the communications channels around the country, so that in the event of an enemy attack uh, at that time, they were concerned that um, uh, that could really uh, weaken our ability to respond to any threat. And so I think they made a purposeful decision to kind of um, debunk the UFO phenomenon and kind of ridicule it, and and the, and uh, and I, they succeeded. And unfortunately, they they succeeded so well that um, even today we have the lingering after effects of that. Um, so it's um, so these days. Any any professional scientist and any um, scientist who's in the middle of his career, uh, if he starts getting involved in the UFO phenomenon, studying it, uh, no matter how sincere he is, and um, it's like touching the third rail, and that could literally spell the end of his career. However, um, on the other hand, there's there are actually a lot of scientists that um, either after they retire or maybe during their working career, but um, anonymously, um, there are scientists who will um, 
you know, take a look into this phenomenon. And and, and I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, mm-hmm. who was an astronomer, and he was um, the and the advisor to the U.S. Air Force uh, back in the 60s and 70s, I guess. And um, and anyway, Dr. Hynek, he was he was an advisor for about 20 years. And I remember because I I kind of go way back there. I remember when Dr. Hynek was a total skeptic, or at least publicly, about the UFO phenomenon. Uh, but then what happened, Alejandro? was um, he, um, uh, I think it was 1967, uh, he wrote an article in Look Magazine, and I don't know if anybody remembers Look Magazine, but um, in that article, he came out and uh, he realized, he, uh, he admitted that he had come to the conclusion that there was something to the UFO phenomenon. And his, his reasoning was, he had um, worked and interviewed so many pilots and ground personnel in the Air Force who had had um, encounters with UFOs of one type or another. And, that, and then on top of that, he also um, had uh, pretty good evidence of um, nuts and bolts engineering behind the UFO phenomenon. A, a lot of your listeners will be familiar with the Socorro, New Mexico case. I'm not sure when that was back in the... 70s or something, uh, 60s or 70s. But in that case, a police sergeant down in Socorro, New Mexico, Lonnie Zamora, um, spotted a UFO landing, and they actually found the um, uh, the indentations in the soil uh, from the landing gear. And one of the fascinating things about that that Dr. Hynek um, uh, was analyzed was that. Um, the the location of the the ground was uneven where the craft landed, and uh, but he uh, he was able to figure out that whatever this uh, craft was had a self leveling landing gear, which is a very very sophisticated uh, type of arrangement, and and so that um, and anyway, after he figured that out, he realized that. Not only is there visual evidence of these things, radar evidence, but here on the ground, there was evidence of something that clearly had an advanced um, landing gear system, and it had left absolute um, evidence of having landed at that spot. And so, um, you know, this is a, simply too much to ignore, and Dr. Hynek at that point came out and admitted that he now believed that this was something that we absolutely needed to take a look at. But he's not the only scientist. Uh, there's others like Dr. James McDonald um, and and Dr. James Harder. And, and of course, um, Stanton Friedman. He's a nuclear physicist. Uh, he's, been follow- he's been studying the UFO phenomenon for many, many years. And, and then there's professionals like Dr. Lynn Kitai, a medical doctor down in Phoenix, uh, who's been following the UFO phenomenon now since the Phoenix Lights, which she had, she was an eyewitness too. So um, even though there are um, many scientists stay away from um, the uh, subject of UFOs, there are definitely others who have come out and have been willing to talk about it publicly and are, are willing to study it. Um, so I, I don't think, I, so I think there's definitely some hope 
uh, for the future here. And as, and as we get further into our interview here, I'll show you one reason why. Uh, I'll show you a number of reasons why uh, we may have something to really look for that could um, possibly settle the question of how these things function. Right, and, and yeah, and that, I, that, yeah. we'll definitely be getting into that. But, uh, you know, just to, to um, as far as what you're talking about now, about these different scientists being interested, and you feel, you go, you feel that it's important that we pay attention to this phenomenon, and why is that? Oh, because I believe that um, um, by studying this phenomenon, um, I believe we could potentially leapfrog our understanding of um, of nature at its deepest levels um, because I think um, what's going on uh, currently in, in modern physics, the direction of modern physics, is uh, pointing to a likely explanation of how these UFOs work. And and if you if you take a look at what's going on in in current physics and um, it's um, very very intriguing um, the uh, what's going on because we there's now it looks like we may find evidence for example of extra large dimensions and it's these extra large dimensions that are key to what I talk about in the book. Uh, they're one of the keys, um, and uh, so I think it's absolutely, uh, in my opinion, I think it's absolutely imperative that um, uh, you know the scientific community, uh, more people get involved. And but the other thing that's I think is also critical, which I guess we can talk about later, but um, I believe we can actually, if we can get um, uh, spectrographic evidence or, or data from actual UFO sightings, uh, we should be able to detect um, a certain type of radiation. And if we do, do detect that type of radiation, it will virtually confirm uh, what these things, how they function, what the technology is behind their um, uh, craft. And and so that's why I think this is so critical. It will become a, a much more clear as we get further into this. But... Uh, yeah, so we can, uh, as we go along here. Yeah. All right, great. So let's get into that, uh, modern physics and, and how you feel it's revealing uh, the technology behind the UFOs. And, and I'll definitely be asking a lot of questions because not everybody are math geniuses like us and understand M-theory. I'm just kidding, actually. M-theory, oh. I'm <laughs> into science and I and I study and I've watched, I can't remember the name of the lady who's on a lot talking about it. And really, it's something I've been having a hard time grasping. So I'll be asking you a lot of questions because hopefully through our discussion, I'll be able to understand this M3 a little better. Uh, but we'll be getting into that. But yeah, let's get into how you believe uh, modern physics is starting to, and, and from what you've observed, how we may be starting to understand these technologies. Okay. Uh, the lady that you referred to might be... Dr. Lisa Randall, Professor Randall? Yeah, I believe so. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, she's a Harvard physicist, and she's actually, yep. um, her theory is critical to this, um, what I'm talking about in the book. And uh, So I'm glad you brought her up. Um, but um, I'll I tell you what, I, I, can, I can tell you first um, um, what I noticed about the UFOs 
of the data, the UFO data, um, that is um, uh, very, very important to understanding how they work. Um, and now I've been I've been kind of studying physics for a couple of decades now. You know, when I had, on the side, I was working full time, but whenever I had a chance, I was reading physics books. And um, at the same time, I was thinking about the UFO phenomenon, trying to figure out how these things worked. And uh, like many, many other people, Alejandro, I figured that they must be using anti-gravity. And uh, but then, as I got more and more into physics, um, I began to have some worries and doubts about the concept of anti-gravity. And the reason for that is that um, um, the gravity is different. There's four fundamental forces in nature. Uh, they are electromagnetism, uh, the weak nuclear force, which is responsible for um, a, a radioactive decay, uh, the strong nuclear force, which holds the uh, the protons and the uh, and the nu- uh, neutrons together in the nucleus, and it overcomes the repulsive force of the positive protons so they don't blow apart. That's the strong nuclear force. And then gravity. So there's only those four forces, electromagnetism, the weak nuclear force, the strong nuclear force, and gravity. And uh, uh, But here's, here's the thing that worried me as I was trying to relate um, science and physics to the UFO phenomenon. I was kind of hoping I'd be able to figure out um, some kind of anti-gravity. But I noticed that um, three of the four forces of nature have something that's called spin, quantum spin. And that's just a characteristic of subatomic particles. All subatomic particles have three fundamental uh, characteristics. Uh, They are uh, their electric charge, their mass, and their quantum spin. And their quantum spin isn't like everyday spin, but we don't really need to go into that. The only important thing to be aware of is that the spin of the three non-gravity forces of nature, uh, the weak nuclear force, the strong nuclear force, and electromagnetism. Uh, oh, wait, I'm sorry, I should mention one other thing. All, partic- all forces uh, are believed to be represented by a carrier particle, a particle that carries that force. So, for example, electromagnetism is carried by the photon. Uh, the weak nuclear force is carried by the W plus W minus and Z neutral bos- uh, bosons. Bosons are force particles. And and the strong nuclear force is carried by a particle called the gluon. And you can see where the name comes from, glue, mm-hmm. <laughs> meaning holding things together. And uh, and anyway, these three particles, uh, force carrier particles, all have quantum spin of one, okay? But gravity has quantum spin of two. And um, the three um, non-gravity forces, force particles with quantum spin of one, each of them have multiple uh, charges, multiple polarity. So yeah, as you, people know, uh, the elect- electromagnetic uh, force can come in uh, positive or negative, or in terms of polarity, it can be the North Pole and South Pole. Um, and likewise, the weak nuclear force uh, is W plus and W minus, as well as Z neutral. 
and the and the gluons uh, come in what they call color, and so the color represents the uh, different uh, types of charge that uh, this um, that they can have. They have three basic colors. Uh, they, uh, physicists um, use the analogy; they call it red, blue, and green. But and not that any of that's important. But uh, I mean, other than to say that they have multiple charges. But um, the graviton, which is believed to be the theory, is the theoretical particle that is believed to carry the gravity force, um, uh, comes in only uh, one charge, and that's positive gravity. That's it. And that had me pretty worried. I couldn't figure out, you know, how I could get anti-gravity out of something that it looked to be just a single polarity as far as charge. Mm-hmm. A quick and, question uh, here. And, and, yes. yes. Uh, it seems like the carrier particles for the weak and the EM and the strong, we're certain of what those particles are, and we have a little more idea about the nature of those particles. But you said the graviton is theoretical, um, which indicates we yeah. we really don't know yeah. much about gravity, huh? Uh, well, we we do and we don't. We haven't detected the graviton yet um, because, um, pro- and I'll explain why the the main reason why we haven't. Um, and um, and and you're absolutely correct. Uh, the three non-gravity forces we know a huge amount of information about them, and we've um, we've developed theories like quantum electrodynamics and quantum chromodynamics and things like that, that uh, as well as Maxwell's laws of electromagnetism that explain um, the behavior uh, of these other forces to a high degree of accuracy. Um, unfortunately, with gravity, um, we have a geometric theory of gravity, which is Einstein's theory of general relativity, um, but we don't have a quantum theory of gravity that deals at the particle level, um, and that's what uh, we're trying to figure out. But everything right now points in the direction of the graviton uh, most likely having a single a, a single polarity and being just positive. However, this is where um, data from UFO encounters UFO sightings um, becomes important. And and this is the connection that I, I, about a number of years ago that I made and I realized that this is critical to explaining how they work. In a, and, and I can tell you a particular sighting that really caught my attention. It was back in 1966. Um, it was at uh, Wanakew Reservoir <clears throat> in northern New Jersey and um, in the in the sighting, Alejandro, um, a police officer, or actually several police officers, had been seeing these UFOs um, uh, hovering over Wanakew Reservoir. But they saw something that was um, that when I first read their reports, I couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, the officers reported that when the UFO was hovering about 10 or 15 feet above the reservoir, um, an entire mass of water from the reservoir was being lifted up underneath the UFO, toward the UFO. Not away from the UFO, but toward it. And 
and the officer described, he said the UFO might have been like 100 feet in diameter, and the a mass of water was probably 150 feet in diameter underneath, and the UFO was a typical circular UFO. And he said that um, the the water at, in, the, in the reservoir, literally thousands and thousands of tons of water, uh, was being lifted up as like a, in a body um, where it was two or three feet above the natural level of the reservoir. And so... Um, he he just noted that in his report, um, but uh, and others observed it as well. Uh, he then noticed that when the object uh, sped away, and it went up over a ridge, a nearby ridge where there were a lot of pine trees, and as it was hovering over the ridge, he noticed that the tops of the pine trees were swirled, were being swirled around, and being pulled together, almost as if somebody had put a lasso a lasso around it. And they were t- tightening them together, and uh, and 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 that was another thing. When I read that, that puzzled me as well, because my thinking, um, certainly back in the 1960s, was that these UFOs had to be using anti-gravity, so we shouldn't be seeing water or other objects lifted up underneath toward the UFO from the ground, nor should we see f- trees. Uh, being pulled together underneath the UFO. To the contrary, what we should be seeing, if it had anti-gravity, we should be seeing uh, the water either level or being pushed down slightly, um, and or the trees being pushed apart. But we shouldn't. Um, it didn't make any sense. And that was the critical clue as to how these things work. And, uh, and so uh, do you want me to continue? or? Yeah, no, this is great. Okay, um, so anyway, um, I continued to read physics and stuff like that, and these stories that I had read over the years of um, the UFOs actually lifting up objects from the ground um, it puzzled me and puzzled me, and I just couldn't figure it out. And and that was those that particular story I told about Wanaku was only one of many many stories mm-hmm. that were similar to that. So. Um, at, at, uh, around the year 2000, uh, toward the end of the 20th century, um, what was going on in physics is um, they were trying to unify the four fundamental forces of nature. That's like the fun- that's like the holy grail of modern physics. And and what they're actually trying to do is so like I, I can give you an example. Um, back in the 1850s it was thought that the electric force and the magnetic force were two separate forces. Um, But then uh, James Clerk Maxwell uh, proved mathematically that the electric force and the magnetic force were two aspects of a single force, uh, which is the electromagnetic force. Mm -hmm. And he, he did all the math and everything that showed that. And that math indicated that there should be, um, um, waves or particles that travel at the speed of light and um and that of course is what we call light waves and uh, and so over the years in the 1920s 1930s and 40s physics um learned more and more and they unraveled nature further and further and they and i think by the 1970s maybe by the early 80s um they had managed to unite 
not only the elect- the electric and magnetic force into electromagnetism, but they also united uh, theoretically and experimentally um, the electromagnetic force and the weak nuclear force, and that's refer that um, unification is referred to as the electroweak force, and they've actually um, seen this electroweak force in particle accelerators when they do experiments. Uh, so they know that it. So they know that the theory matches the uh, experiment, and which is very, very important. Um, now they're working on trying to unite uh, the strong nuclear force with the electroweak force. So that would, if they can do that, that will actually be three of the four forces united. And they call that theory the grand unified theory. Uh, it's only the non-gravity forces. Um, so far, they haven't uh, been able to do it, um, but they have some theories that uh, look promising, and they might eventually get it. Um, but the um, the odd man out in all of these attempts to unify the forces of nature is the force of gravity. Mm-hmm. And the question is, why is the force of gravity the one that they can't um, uh, bring into any of these um attempts at unification and the reason is and this is critical to um, to uh, understanding gravity the reason is is because gravity is much much weaker than the other forces of nature Um, and in fact and in fact Alejandro it's exponentially weaker and um, and so much so uh, let's see, I've, I've got a chart here. I'm just going to dig it out. Oh, here it is. Okay. Uh, just to give you an idea, um, the electromagnetic force is 10 to the 36 power stronger than the gravity force. So let me um, put that in um, in like a number that people can see um, or visualize. Um, imagine... One, the number one, followed by 36 zeros. You can imagine that's a big number. Mm-hmm. If you won that at the casinos in Las Vegas in dollars, you'd be, you know, in the whole world. <laughs> and, See, this uh, has been uh, one of the things that's difficult for me to understand. Is and and you know, I've listened to okay. to Miss Randall talk about gravity being a weak force. And of course, in our daily lives, we're dealing with gravity constantly, and uh, gravity That's seems true. pretty strong. I mean, gravity holds us to the planet. Uh, you know, gravity has a lot of effects on us. Uh, so, it for a person that apparently seems to be a pretty strong force. Um, so, to think of these other forces being so much stronger, is there an example of that? I guess um, maybe. Uh, Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I can. It's kind of a uh, a clunky example, but mm-hmm. this will uh, illustrate it. Um, if you have a pen or a pencil, um, hold it up and or and then and then drop it into your hand. Okay, and that's the force. That's the entire planet Earth pulling on that pencil, and it and y- you can stop it. Uh, with your hand, if, mm-hmm. if you just drop the pencil into your hand, hold your hand up above the table, and and so you may think that's trivial, but it's not. Um, if that pencil, instead of being just in a gravity field, but if that pencil had been a, an electron, 
and the planet Earth down below was a proton, so then you'd be dealing with the electromagnetic force. If you did that same um, example there and you dropped the electron into your hand, you could kiss your hand goodbye. <laughs> the electron would literally go right through. It wouldn't even notice your hand. I mean, it would just, um, your hand would be severed. <laughs> and and, and it's, it would just be, you'd never see it again. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, so I know it's kind of a clunky example, but um, it shows you how weak the gravity force is. Um, and and it's it's um, incredibly weak. It's so incredibly weak um, that it's one of the problems in modern physics. And in fact, they actually even have a name for it. And this is important to the solution to the UFO enigma. So every uh, the listeners should um, you know pay attention to this problem. It's the weakness of gravity versus the other forces of nature is referred to as the hierarchy problem. And um, nobody at currently knows exactly why gravity is so weak compared to the other forces. It just doesn't seem to make any sense. And that's why it's so difficult to study gravity because it's so incredibly weak, even though I admit that getting up out of bed in the morning can be tough. <laughs> and, and uh, But... Um, Nevertheless, relative to the other forces of nature, gravity is incredibly weak. And now we get into the solution to the to a, one of the big um, uh, issues in the UFO enigma, and it relates directly to the hierarchy problem. And it, and um, so, um, uh, what happened? And I, I have to backtrack a little bit here. Uh, what happened during the last couple of decades? of the 20th century uh, was a number of physicists were working on many, many different theories. And, uh, and, and they were, of course, trying to figure out um, why gravity is so weak, and they were trying to unify the forces and stuff like that. And originally, for most of the 20th century, uh, they, it was believed that um, subatomic particles like electrons uh, were, were infinitesimally tiny little dimensionless points and uh, and but they were having a lot of problems with the math they were ending up with mathematical infinities uh, when they when they were considering that when they thought that all these subatomic particles were dimensionless points but finally back in the 70s I believe um, they uh, they discovered um, or they started developing a new theory called string theory uh, that proposes that all the subatomic particles, instead of being dimensionless points, are actually uh, one-dimensional strings that are wiggling. And these are incredibly tiny strings. But uh, it was a fantastic ad advance because uh, the, one of the things, one of the big things that it solved was a lot of the problems with the infinities that they were mathematical infinities uh, because now you had something that actually had a um, a dimension hmm. and so uh, this this theory string theory continued on and it evolved in the in the seventies eighties and the nineties um, and and by about nineteen ninety five it had evolved to a new theory, which was not exactly string theory, but incorporated string theory, 
And this new theory, or actually group of theories, is referred to as M-theory. And M-theory and um, includes some, not only wiggling strings, but it also includes two-dimensional, three-dimensional, four-dimensional membranes. Hmm. And so uh, that's where... Um, that's where we are right about now, and and so, and currently, you know, over the last decade or so, physicists have been working on uh, improving M theory and trying to figure m- more things from M theory. But um, uh, so M theory is actually a group of theories, uh, but um, one of the theories that comes out of M theory um, is called um, actually I. I don't think it has an actual name, um, but it, it's called uh, 11D um, E8 by E8 theory. You know, you don't have to worry about that. That's it. Really, it, it the E8 number refers to certain symmetries, and I'm, I, I don't want to get into that because that'll take too long to explain. But uh, what uh, M theory is basically proposing, or one of these theories that comes out of M theory, is that. Um, we may live um, all of the universe that you can see around us, the distant stars, distant galaxies. We may live on a four-dimensional space-time membrane, and um, and it's thought that um, uh, this space-time membrane uh, is floating in a larger five-dimensional space-time. So, uh, the best way to visualize this would be to um, take a piece of paper, and uh, and and of course we live in three spatial dimensions, um, not counting time. And now just take up a, a piece of paper in your hand, uh, an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper, and just hold it up. And you can visualize that uh, as an anal- as an analogy. Uh, that's the paper is only two dimensions, uh, but you can think of that as the space time four dimensional space time membrane we live in. And you can see that as it can float around in front of you in the air, in the three-dimensional air in front of you. And that's exactly what they think, something along those lines, that our entire universe is sitting on a four-dimensional membrane that's floating around in a larger five-dimensional uh, space-time. And it's thought that uh, that at least one other space-time, four-dimensional space-time membrane is existing out there as well that's parallel to the space-time membrane that we live on. And here's where it gets interesting as far as the UFO phenomenon goes. Um, uh, Dr. Randall from Harvard University um, was trying, one of her, um, uh, one of the things that she was working on was trying to solve the hierarchy problem. So she and another physicist, um, Dr. Ramon Sundram from John Hopkins University, they came up with um, a theory that is referred to as warped geometry. And um, uh, let me just get a drink of water here for a second. Yeah, no problem. I like that name. And I'll make another note while you're getting some water. Is that the string theory, one of the people who worked on it is Michio Kaku, famous uh, theoretical physicist who also believes that UFOs deserve to be researched some more. But just a little aside while you're getting a drink. Oh, yes. Uh, Thank you for mentioning him because he's one of the uh, few practicing physicists 
uh, who's been willing to stick his neck out and suggest that we really should be looking at this phenomenon. And uh, But anyway, um, the warp geometry theory um, uh, that uh, Dr. Randall and Dr. Sundram came up with, uh, they postulate that uh, the four-dimensional membrane that we live on they call it the weak membrane, uh, W-E-A-K, and the weak uh, relates to the weak nuclear force, which is kind of the energy level that um, our membrane uh, around the energy level that exists on our membrane the, that we live on. And uh, and so uh, th- this is all explained a little more in, in more detail in my book. Um, but then they thought that maybe the other membrane that's parallel to ours um, is warped in such a way um, that it attracts um, 99.99999% of all the gravitons in the universe to its surface. And that then explains the hierarchy problem. Here's what's going on. Um, so they, what they, their theory says is that um, the strength of gravity becomes exponentially greater the further away you get from the weak brain, the the, the four-dimensional membrane that we live on, that our universe is in, and 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 it gets and gravity gets exponentially stronger as you get closer to the gravity membrane, which is believe it's also referred to as the Planck membrane, P L A N C K, named after. Max Planck, a, a German physicist who was one of the founders of quantum mechanics. And, uh, but anyway, what's exciting about this um, is that it explains why gravity is so much weaker than the other forces of nature. Uh, because it turns out that many of these um, M-theory sub-theories uh, believe that... Um, um, all the particles in nature, all the subatomic particles, whether they're matter particles like an electron or whether they're force particles like a photon, <clears throat> are open strings, um, and the two ends of that string are thought to be attached to the four-dimensional membrane that we live on, the, the weak membrane in Dr. Randall's theory, and uh, so that they cannot leave um, uh, the four-dimensional universe that we live in. Um, however, uh, of all the forces in nature and matter particles, there is one force particle that is believed not to be an open string, but to be a closed loop, okay? And that is the graviton. And because the graviton is believed to be a closed loop, its two ends, uh, so it doesn't have two open ends, which would be stuck on the 4D membrane pond, like all the other particles that we're used to. Um, so that would allow the graviton of all the other particles in nature, force and matter particles, it would allow the graviton and only the graviton to travel, to go anywhere it likes in the five-dimensional uh, space-time. So it actually leaves um, our four-dimensional, most of them anyway, leave our four-dimensional space-time membrane <clears throat> and travel into the what they call the bulk, uh, B-U-L-K, which is considered that space between the weak membrane where we live and the strong membrane, uh, I mean the strong gravity membrane 
uh, the Planck brain, w which is warped and that's attracting most of the gravitons in the larger five-dimensional universe. And that explains why gravity is so weak. Virtually every graviton in the universe is is much closer to the gravity brain than it is to the um, four-dimensional weak membrane where our universe is located. And that's why gravity is so weak. However, here's this is the um, this this is the solution to a big piece of the UFO um, uh, question enigma. I believe these UFOs have figured out how to get how to uh, leave our weak membrane and penetrate into that into the bulk that five-dimensional space between these two other membrane these two membranes. And if they are able to do that, um, that's how they're able to get to other star systems. Here's how they do it. General relativity tells us that um, um, when gravity is strong, um, that distances shrink. Okay? So if you're in a strong gravity field, um, then the stronger the gravity field, the shorter the distance, or what they call geodesic, is between two points. It gets smaller and smaller. And that's exactly how I think these UFOs are going from one star system to another. They're penetrating into this bulk, and they go deep enough in, Alejandro, to, where, to the point where the distance between other stars is very small. And I actually was able to do a calculation uh, to demonstrate how effective this would be. Um, if they, all they have to do is go in as far into the bulk where the force of gravity is only one ten thousandth as strong as its maximum strength, and just that short distance going into the five-dimensional bulk, the distance between our star and Alpha Centauri, the closest star system to us, shrinks to just 25 miles. Isn't that amazing? And so, that's but, how I think they're... They, ha they would have yeah. to accumulate this massive amount of gravity, or relatively, I guess, gra large amount of gravity, to do that? I'm going to explain that next, but that's, okay. a, that's a very good question. That's a very good question. I'm glad. Um, I, I, I didn't want to overwhelm uh, the audience and everything with too much physics, you know. I, I needed a little uh, break there, and, and you provided it there. Gotcha. Uh, you're exactly right. How, how the heck do they get in there? Well, I believe I know how they get in there. Um, they, if um, the theories, if M theory, and if um, uh, warp geometry, the one of the theory of Dr. Randall and Dr. Sundrum, if these theories are correct, one of the things that they expect to find are a uh, certain modes of particles because. Um, Particles that, um, uh, if this extra dimension exists, this fifth dimension, then uh, they believe that um, uh, any um, gravitons, it, uh, they believe that there are certain a type of graviton called a Kaluza-Klein graviton uh, is going to exist that will be much, much stronger than the ordinary massless graviton that carries the gravity force uh, here on our four-dimensional membrane. 
Um, so uh, what they believe is that um, uh, these gravitons are, are able to vibrate inside this fifth dimension, and um, and the more they vibrate, they can go into different modes. They can vibrate. Uh, they can oscillate once or twice or three times, all the way up to hundreds of times. You know, and the more times that they oscillate, uh, then in that uh, extra dimension, uh, the greater the energy that they have, and and that energy can translate into mass. And so it's believed that these KK Kaluza-Klein gravitons, um, some of them will have mass. And not only that, but they'll be uh, tremendously, um, they'll have tremendously powerful gravitational attraction and only attraction. Um, and it's believed that their gravitational attraction will be on the order of the most powerful ones, will be on the order of 10 to the 16 power stronger than the ordinary graviton that we're used to in everyday life. So imagine a graviton that is um, stronger by a factor of one followed by 16 zeros. Okay, not a hundred times more stronger, not a thousand, not 10 million, not 10 billion, but a gazillion, gazillion, gazillion. (laughs) And so these are going to be incredibly powerful gravitons. And I believe... Um, what these so uh, we expect to be creating these Kaluza-Klein gravitons in the Large Hadron Collider, mm. and um, and and they they should be very we should be able to de- detect them um, because um, uh, these KK gravitons um, will in turn create micro black holes and. And so everybody's probably heard of these micro black holes. But these micro black holes, in turn, they won't last very long. They'll only last for much, much less than a less than a nanosecond. nanosecond. Um, and these micro black holes will de- decay quickly. However, when they decay, they'll put out a certain type of um, radiation called Hawking radiation. And, um, and so we should be able to to detect that at the Large Hadron Collider Particle Accelerator over in Geneva, Switzerland. That accelerator won't reach full power until, I think, 2014. Um, But it's potentially possible we might create some micro black holes in it before then. And uh, so, um, anyway, I believe the way these things are working, Alejandro, is they are, I think, the, one of the reasons, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, the reason why they are circular, they always have some uh, part or aspect of the craft that's circular. In other words, the craft will either be cylindrical, these UFOs, it'll be either cylindrical, it'll be a sphere, or it'll be a disc, a flying saucer. Uh, or it might be one of these triangle UFOs, but it'll have large, brightly lit, uh, circles in each corner, and uh, and I believe the reason that they all have a circular aspect to them is because these flying saucers are particle accelerators. That's what I think they are, and and here's where it here's where the whole thing comes together. Um, I believe uh, what they're doing these they're smashing subatomic particles together 
um, in, uh, in the rim area of these UFOs. And they are first creating KK gravitons, which in turn induce the creation of micro black holes. And, uh, and these micro black holes are very, very important because I see, I, I've been looking in physics archives. Um, you can go to these sites on the web where physicists post um, uh, discussions about the work that they're doing or the theories that they're working on. And one of the things I've been doing is going into these uh, sites uh, that talk about uh, micro black holes. And micro now here's and now this is where it gets real exciting. And this is what how the UFOs work. And so uh, it, it's um, this is where you definitely want to pay attention to the audience because uh, this is how I believe they work. And and I believe we can prove it uh, by gathering a certain certain types of data. But it turns out when I studied these papers that physicists were writing about micro black holes, which we think we're going to be creating in the Large Hadron Collider, uh, one of the things that I noticed um, uh, was that they talked about how these micro black holes uh, would absorb everything in sight. Okay, and the thought occurred to me. I said, I thought to myself, I said, too, if they if they absorb, if the micro black hole can absorb like a molecule of air if it can absorb a photon, that's what they mean when they say a black hole. They mean things going into it can't get out, so it appears black as far as we can't see it. And uh, um, However, actually, in, in, in reality, they're not black, but that's um, not important right now. But anyway, these micro-black holes, I realized, were absorbing everything. And the thought occurred to me, if they're absorbing electrons and protons and atoms and molecules of air and dust and any kind of junk that's flying near the UFO, then would they also absorb gravitons, um, the 4D gravitons that the Earth emits? And those gravitons uh, are what uh, keep us pinned to the Earth. And uh, so I, I wondered about that, and so I kept reading these papers and sure enough, I soon came across some papers that, just as an aside, they mentioned that these micro black holes are swallowing four-dimensional gravitons. Um, okay, but that in and of itself is is uh, very exciting because it means that these gravitons are being swallowed by micro black holes. In other words, the, the UFOs are able to get rid of them. But what I was worried about is when a micro black hole decays, when it decays, does it emit uh, four-dimensional gravitons? Well, it doesn't. And, and in fact, uh, the only thing it emits back onto the um, four-dimensional membrane, the weak membrane that we live on, is um, Hawking radiation, which does not include gravitons. Hmm. Um, however, however, here's the, here's the key. Most of the energy that's absorbed by the micro black hole, um, when the micro black hole decays, most of that energy is emitted not back onto our four-dimensional membrane, but goes into the five-dimensional bulk. That is, we don't even see it on our four-dimensional membrane. It just disappears. And it actually ends up as five-dimensional gravitons and other stuff that's uh, dumped into the bulk. And that's what the... the now, these are theories but I believe they're correct, and uh, or at least they're on the right track. And 
So that explains how UFOs work. What they're doing is they're creating these millions, billions perhaps, of these micro black holes that are, are absorbing uh, any um, um, gravitons that are emitted by planet Earth and any gravitons that are emitted by the UFO itself. So all these gravitons are sucked up uh, by the micro black holes and dissipated uh, either back as Hawking radiation onto our four-dimensional membrane or they disappear from our world entirely and go into the five-dimensional bulk. Mm -hmm. And so what this means, what this means, Alejandro, is that um, this is not anti-gravity. Instead, it is reducing the gravity force to near zero. And that's how these UFOs are eliminating the force of gravity. And that's how they're doing it. All and right, so, and we're about out of time already. We've, uh, but I guess to get to the area, because I know one important um, aspect of of what you've talked about is how we prove this, and how we would be able to um, detect whether or not this is the technology they're using. And that's and that is the most exciting thing of all. And if and if I, if I won the lottery and had the money, mm-hmm. I'd do it myself. Um, so I'm working on winning the lottery. <laughs> Good luck. But um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> but um, uh, see that, and and this is really exciting because if these UFOs are particle accelerators, if they are creating KK gravitons, and if they are inducing the creation of micro black holes that are swallowing swallowing the four dimensional gravitons from our planet and from the UFO itself, um, the then um, when those um, micro black holes decay, they should give off something that is referred to as Hawking radiation. Now, Hawking radiation kind of looks like a normal curve, but it's um, but it'll be at a specific temperature, and um, and 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 this is also exciting. No, although Hawking, every all physicists or virtually most physicists believe. Um, that Hawking radiation exists. It was predicted by Dr. Professor Stephen Hawking, and but nobody has ever seen Hawking radiation. They are hoping to see it in the Large Hadron Collider. Hmm. But what if those of us who are studying the UFO phenomenon are able to put together um, the spectroscopic devices um, to detect uh, Hawking radiation, um, and and actually, and if if we you know occasionally they'll have UFO waves in a particular area like the Phoenix Lights, and um, uh, so for example, let me give a perfect a perfect example here. When Dr. Lynn Katai, when she was on her balcony, she spotted um, uh, three orbs, a UFO orbs that were probably only I don't know maybe a couple hundred yards from her house in near Phoenix or in Phoenix, and uh, and if she had had one of these spectrographic uh, devices um, and had been able to point it at the UFO, she could have gathered this critical data um, that um, would have allowed us. We could have analyzed it and seen if these uh, uh, UFOs were emitting Hawking radiation. If if incredibly, if if those of us who are studying the UFO phenomenon, if we are the first to detect 
Hawking radiation and confirm it with a couple of other sightings around the country or around the world, um, then this would be a showstopper. Mm-hmm. Um, it would. It would. It, it, this is the most amazing part of all. Uh, it would actually, if if the scientific community then came agreed that this was worth taking a look at, they put together their own. Uh, teams of people to go and detect this um, the radiation being emitted by UFOs and they too detected Hawking radiation um, then I can tell you at that point we virtually know uh, we can al- almost say for certain how these UFOs function how they work and uh, and um, and so I, I want to point out one more thing too um, uh, a number of investigators over the years um, have been trying to figure out what kind of radiation is emitted by UFOs. And one of the uh, 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 top guys who investigated these things was Dr. Paul Hill. He's a NASA scientist, and he's an, he was an early UFO investigator. And Dr. Hill, um, although he, his, his book was published post-mortem after he died, um, he um, um, investigated... Um, uh, what type of radiation was coming out of these UFOs? And he found evidence of gamma rays, X-rays, and higher frequency light emissions in the visible spectrum. Now, gamma rays and X-rays, of course, are not in the visible spectrum. Uh, they're outside of that. But um, he did have evidence of gamma rays. And this is very exciting because it turns out that one of the things that Stephen Hawking predicted is that when um, micro black holes or any type of, when micro black holes uh, decay, they he expects them to emit uh, bursts of gamma rays. And here they and here we already have evidence of gamma rays from actual UFO mm-hmm. sightings. In fact, um, many people in the audience will be familiar with. Um, a guy by the name of Stephen Nikolak. I, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He was a Canadian um, a prospector or amateur prospector, and he approached a UFO that had landed on the ground, and um, he walked up to it, and uh, and and he tried to communicate with it, you know, but he got no response or anything. But as he was standing next to it, uh, the outer rim of this thing was rotating. And something like a vent came directly in front of him, uh, like, oh, um, and it had a, a grid pattern on the vent. And he said suddenly there was a blast of hot air from the vent that hit him in the chest, and it, it, it ignited his clothes, his shirt, and he had to rip off his shirt because it was burning. And then he ran, he ran away from this thing, and it took off. Um, he finally made his way back to civilization because uh, he was up in the hills. And um, I think it was in British Columbia or someplace out there. And uh, and anyway, uh, doctors examined him, and they finally concluded that he had been exposed to a, a, a brief burst of gamma rays. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, and he's not... Isn't that interesting? So here we have virtually first-hand evidence that these things are emitting gamma rays and, and certainly other types of radiation too. But that's key to uh, the decay of micro black holes, gamma rays. And there aren't many ordinary sources of gamma rays in the natural environment. Uh, they do occur 
with uh, um, on a very small scale with radioactive decay, um, and uh, you know, like a like a granite rock may have an occasional gamma ray come out of it, but not in the kind of concentrations that um, uh, burned uh, Stephen Mikulak up in Canada there. And, well, that is uh, so exciting. That's mm-hmm. yeah. And, I was just going to say so it is I'm, really. Uh, and, uh-huh. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, and oh yeah, the, uh, uh, yeah. Um, so uh, the, what I'm uh, so my uh, objective here, and and I hope um, there are listeners out there that perhaps have expertise in the use. Uh, they have access to an expertise in the use of spectrographic equipment, and perhaps we can put together an organization. Uh, of volunteers or um, that uh, we could get out there in the field and and try to detect um, this Hawking radiation if it's being emitted by these UFOs. And I should I should add one caveat here. Um, uh, unfortunately, um, spectrographic equipment could be a little expensive because uh, the visible spectrum uh, is probably relatively inexpensive. That type of equipment. But detecting gamma rays and X-rays and stuff like that uh, would be a bit more complicated, and you would have to calibrate or correlate all of the emissions from the UFO um, because the different types of equipment would uh, gather the emissions in different ways, and so you'd somehow. So, but I'm sure there are experts out there that can figure out how to do that because I, they're already trying to do that at the Large Hadron Collider. So I'm sure there are experts that know how to correlate the data from different uh, sources, of uh, different types of instruments, you know. And But anyway, that's, um, that's the objective. That's the goal. Uh, that's what I hope to achieve by doing these talks on online radio shows and around the country, you know, wherever I can get... Uh, generate some interest in this but anyway that's the uh, goal this has been really interesting i think you've been able to describe your theory and of course your book is on amazon solving the ufo enigma and then how would people get a hold of you if they wanted to oh my email is uh, bob ufo at aol.com okay bob ufo at aol.com i'd love to hear from people that um you know, might be able to help out on trying to, you know, who have access to this type of equipment or expertise in the use of it. Um, that would that would be terrific. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me, and and much appreciated. All right, Bob, UFO at AOL dot com. If you have a gamma ray detector or if you um, are interested in contacting him on his ideas. So what a great show. Thank you so much, Robert Schroeder, for being on the show. Check out his book, UFOs and Modern Physics. You can find it on Amazon. As for the show, we are out of time. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to visit visit UFODailyNews.com. That's UFODailyNews.com for all of your latest UFO news, including those stories we talked about earlier in the show. Thank you so so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week.